The reading for today's sermon comes from Joshua chapter 24, beginning at verse 14. Hear the word of the living God. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, surprising words indeed. Open our eyes, we pray. Show us the grace that is hidden here, even in such terrifying words as you spoke to your people all these hundreds, thousands of years ago. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. And if those things are to be things that will shake us, may it be so. May we be shaken as the heavens and earth will be shaken at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be ready for him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. Just one one final note. Um, You'll notice that Pastor Neil is not here today. Pastor Neil has a wonderful uh, opportunity for the gospel in the prison system in Texas, and today 
He is in, uh, ministering in prison. It's not a thing that many pastors get to do, and it's proved very, very faithful, uh, very fruitful, pardon me. Uh, Pastor Neil has proved very faithful, you know that. Um, I encourage you to talk with him about it. It's really stirring to hear of all the Lord is doing in the hearts of individuals, as well as just in the, the prison as a whole, that um, he's able to serve there. So uh, do be in prayer for him uh, as you're praying later today and so on. So Joshua 24. I want to think, if I may, about our words. Perhaps we might begin with what we've said in the last few minutes. The words that we have spoken on this occasion of our formal gathered worship together. Let's think back to what we've talked about, what we've said. We have made professions of commitment to the Lord. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words, we have said. We have made expressions of gratitude. We give you thanks for your kindness and abundant pardon. We have made professions of homage. Let us kneel before the Lord. We have expressed praise. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We have recalled commitment from the past that we profess to have demonstrated. I considered my ways and turned your feet, my feet to your testimonies. And we have made pledges concerning what we will do in the future. At midnight I shall rise and praise you. Now, I don't think that's supposed to be taken literally, either then or now. But it's interesting, isn't it? it it represents a pledge of future commitment to prayerfulness. All these things we have said, quite a catalogue of bold and uncompromising resolutions, isn't it? And then think about other situations, things we've said on other occasions, maybe recently, maybe in the more distant past, formal occasions, wedding vows, membership vows, other formal statements of allegiance and commitment to other people, or informal things that we've said, things you've said just in day-to-day relationships. Yeah, I'll do whatever it is, or yeah, okay, I'll sort that out whenever, or at work, and other things that we have said, all of which in one way or another are commitments that we have made, which manifest in one way or another the central commitment that we have made to Christ. Is it not the case that everything we say in one sense flows from that? If we want people to believe we speak the truth, which I hope we do, then really all the things that we say follow from our central commitment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And therefore everything you say, all the commitments that we make are to be true. Countless pledges and promises and commitments that we have made all flowing from our central commitment to the Lord. Now imagine, just for one moment, that we could somehow bring our friend Joshua back to stand among us. And he could listen to us. And he could hear all of the pledges, all of the verbal assent, all of the promises, all of the recollections of past faithfulness and all of the commitments to what we will do in the future. How do you think he'd respond? What would he say? Joshua, what would you say to this, to us, this community of the people of God? I don't know, actually. I don't think we can know for sure. But I think we can see what he might say. 
we can see at least one possibility which leaps out from us, from this passage at us, because it's what he said in an analogous situation 2,400 years ago. When he stood among the people of God and heard their repeated, insistent, dogmatic, certain, heartfelt pledges of fealty to the Lord. And what he has to say, as you will have noticed in the reading, which we'll come to in a second, is really quite surprising, isn't it? What would he say to us? Uh, You recall the context uh, of this part of the book of Joshua. We're in the final section of the book of Joshua. The people are settled in the land, having entered it, in the first section conquered it, in the second section divided up among themselves in the third section. And now we've got three great gatherings of which this is the third. And on this occasion, the people of Israel are called to pledge allegiance to the Lord. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. We're going to look again at the last bit of that reading and the, the final bit next week, Lord willing. Uh, But this is the moment. This is the moment where you get to say what you're going to do now. And those of you who are members of All Saints can preach along this bit with me. You know that the book of Joshua tells a story of Israel receiving their inheritance from the Lord as they entered the land of Canaan. And therefore it speaks to the church in this way. We have been granted the world as our inheritance. And the book of Joshua explains how we are to conquer it by wielding the sword of the Spirit and seeking to live faithful and committed lives to the Lord as we, down through the generations, see the gospel spread out to all the corners of the world. And so, what's going on here? Well, this is the moment. This is where we all get to decide. This is, in effect, a monumental mirror of what we really do every Lord's Day morning when we renew covenant with the Lord, where we get to say, whose side are we on? Who are you going to fight for? Are we going to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind? And and as we read these words, we are being invited to consider what we would say. And actually, you've already said it. And you recall the context. You've got a brief introduction in uh, verse 1, where Joshua gathers all the people. Chapters, uh, verses 2 through 13, you've got this historical overview, which is somewhat unflattering, highlighting all the things that are wrong with the people of Israel. And this week, we reach this climactic moment. Verse 14 really is it. It is the moment when Joshua, whose name means Jesus, it's the the moment when the one appointed by the Lord to save his people stands before you and says, right, verse 14, now, everybody, you ready? And notice the intensity with which he speaks. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you can see how that's echoed through the generations, can't you? That's the fridge magnet Bible verse from the book of Joshua, isn't it? Hands up, come on. I want to see the hands. If you've got a fridge magnet, a poster, one of those wooden carved things somewhere in your house that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No, it's Texas, right? Most of you've got it. You're like, yeah, I know better. But none of you got verse 19. We may come to that in a few minutes. And so the people answer, verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. 
For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the peoples we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord. And everyone breathes a huge sigh of relief. Isn't that what you'd want to say? Joshua's standing here. O house of all saints, will you serve the Lord? And we all answer, yes, we will. And how does Joshua respond? What does he say? Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. One commentator calls this perhaps the most shocking statement in the whole Old Testament. I don't know whether that's actually true, but it's, I mean, this is up there, isn't it? This gets to compete alongside all the other things you hadn't expected the covenant God to say. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you And after having done you good. Thank you for puncturing a happy occasion, Joshua. Can you see? It's just, what are we to make of this? And before we get into the, into the details of the text, there are a couple of things I want to highlight before you. But we, we have some things to deal with straight away, don't we? I want to suggest a couple of immediate implications that leap out from us, just as we skim over the surface of this text. Joshua understands something that this passage is really designed to press home to us. It's reflected in the title of today's sermon, Talk is Cheap. It is easy, profoundly easy, to make protestations of commitment which just so often go unfulfilled, isn't it? And Joshua knows that. Joshua is, I mean, he's a pastor, among other things. The one who's the under-shepherd of the Lord leading these people. John Calvin, who also was a pastor, people think of Calvin as a theologian because of all the big fat books he wrote, but he was a pastor of the church in Geneva. Listen to what he said in commenting on this passage. When the Lord brings men under his authority, they are usually willing enough to profess zeal for piety, although they instantly fall away from it. And it's so tempting to say, oh Calvin, (laughs) there you go again dour old pessimistic Calvin? Well, really? No. I don't, I don't think he's any more pessimistic there than Joshua is here in realizing that uh, what we say with our lips is so frequently not manifested in our lives. But I wonder, let's get granular. Are there any husbands or are there any wives here who need after today to go home and apologize. I've made pledges of commitment to you, my darling, which I have not fulfilled. And I'm sorry. Are there any? Does that need to happen? Are there children who have had six months of sleepless nights because of something that you said to mom or dad but that you never actually did? 
or said you didn't do, which you did do, or whatever. Do we need to go home and clear the air? Wait till the end of the service, all right. Because Joshua understands us, doesn't he? You can see why Jesus is named after him. The one who knows our hearts. And more than that, second and related to that, he, it's clear that Joshua suspects, at least, perhaps knows by divine revelation, something about the future of this community of people. See, it's not the case that the leaders of the people of God always speak in this way, is it? Look at verse 19 and 20 again. I mean, it's really shocking if you think about it. I mean, if, if this is what the Bible always said about this whole forgiveness thing, you know, I'm not sure we'd all be here today, would we? We know it's not what he always says, because Psalm 119, we read that earlier, and countless other places. So look again. Um, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He won't forgive you. You're like, well, yikes. So what is it that he knows? Actually, you look at verse 20. Your translation, if it's like mine, probably says something like, if you forsake the Lord, and so on and so forth. Actually, the word if is not there in the Hebrew text. It's inferred from the, the tense and the mode of the verb. And it might be implied, but it's implied more tentatively than if the word if, boom, im is the word, were just right there. And the, and the suggestion is this, that Joshua is like, it's kind of inevitable, you're going to forsake the Lord, and that's why he won't forgive you. Verse 20 and 19. And so... Wouldn't you want to ask, okay, so Joshua sees something in this community of people which lead him to this inescapable conclusion. You can't serve the Lord, and he's not going to forgive you. Don't you want to know what he sees? Wouldn't you like to be warned ahead of time, right, so that if there's something that they're doing that we're doing, we can kind of avoid that so that we won't hear this terrible, terrible verdict? And there are two things, really, it seems to me, that he sees. And I want to share them with you and explore them in a little bit of detail. What he sees in the people of Israel that leads him to this appalling conclusion that Yahweh, the covenant God, the God whose name is grace and kindness and mercy, what is it that leads him to the conclusion that his name is jealous and vengeful and he won't forgive you? He sees, first, that their hearts were still attracted to false gods. And that's the first thing that Joshua's like, well, if that being the case, the Lord won't forgive you. And actually, you let the, let the movie script of the Bible roll on, you get to Judges, and what it's like, <laughs> he turned out to be right, didn't he? Let's see, see how he knows this. Just look at me, verse 14 again. Notice that, um, just verse 14, Joshua is demanding not just um, let's add Yahweh to the pantheon, but absolute commitment. Notice, verse 14. Now therefore, standing up to his full height, raising his voice ever so slightly, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, positively. And then negatively, notice what he says. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And we noted last week, didn't we, that beyond the river, that's a reference to Abraham uh, and Egypt. Well, that's kind of closer to home. Abraham was hundreds of years before this. In Egypt is within living memory, at least within vivid living memory of the stories and history that have been retold of what they did in Egypt. And he keeps insisting again and again, look verse 21, 
The people say, look, no, 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 we will. You get this back and forth protestation, don't you? Joshua speaks and they speak and Joshua speaks and they speak again and again. Verse 21, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, well, your witness is against yourselves. You've chosen the Lord to serve him. Notice, just as an aside, the, the Joshua insists on the significance of words. You say something. You're a witness against yourself if you should break that pledge. That's why weddings are public events and baptisms are public events. And it's why we don't just do the membership ceremony kind of in private. Sorry, had to grab you and pull you all the way out here. Because we want everyone to hear the words that Lord forbid any of us should fail to keep those pledges. Those words will witness against us. But he continues. Verse 23. What's the problem? Well, look. It's simple, isn't it? Just put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, their hearts were still attracted to false gods. Now, we don't need to go much further, do we? Just think of the obvious and horrifying implications that follow from this. Verse 14 Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and which your parents served in Egypt and served the Lord implies that they had brought idols with them from Egypt. And put away implies, like, get it out of your pocket and put, put it away. Like, smash it to pieces or something. Get rid of the wretched thing. You know how Egyptian uh, religion works. I mean, the Egyptians had no end of gods, frogs and cats and birds and crocodiles and half man, half cow and all kinds of... There's a man with a sun behind his head. And all these, and all these, these uh, fake deities were represented by little figurines. Like, an archaeologist have dug these up in the desert. You, you get these little... You go to the British Museum where the successive generations of archaeologists have stolen them from various parts of the world and they're all in London now. Um, and, and you see these little tiny, beautiful, well, idolatrous, <laughs> statues of Heket the frog god, man's body frog head. And Egyptian religion, which clearly the Israelites indulged in, involved reverence to this imaginary god directed through this little statue. And you actually see it today in some religions. You even see it today, actually, in in a different way, albeit in a different way, in some in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christian piety, where little statues are used as ways of revering the true God. Here, it's idolatry in the sense that it's little statues, ways of revering a false God who doesn't even exist. And so you can imagine, like the Israelites, packing up the, the truck with all the stuff to go out of Egypt, got my hat, got my coat, got my staff, belt, unleavened bread, everything else. Uh, oh, where's the frog God? Hey, can you go and get the, the gods from the bottom drawer? We're going to need them. Because although it's Yahweh, our God, who is bringing us out of Egypt, who's directed all these plagues against all these false gods of Egypt, for some stupid reason, we'd better take them with us. And so they did. And it's astonishing when you think about it, isn't it? And you hear what they now say. Verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. While all the time, they still haven't done verse 23. Isn't that unnerving? It is possible to say, 
far be it from me. Old, old style Hebrew translated into English meaning, I'm absolutely de determined, I'm definitely going to do this. I'm not going to serve foreign gods. It's possible to say that while you still are in possession of the thing that you haven't discarded. You, like you still want to keep it for a rainy day or something. It's possible to do verse 17. It's possible to recall with your lips that the Lord our God brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that we've seen the Lord do miraculous things. We've seen the Lord deliver us. We've seen the Lord bless us. We've seen all the things he's done. And here we are in this land that he's given us with wells we didn't dig and vines we didn't plant and homes we didn't build. And we love the Lord with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. But I'm just going to keep this, like just in case. It's possible for the people of God to do that. There's a moment, isn't there, in um, The Lord of the Rings, and here I'm going to be giving away the fact that I like the film version better, but I know that's kind of controversial. No, I don't like the film version better. I've just not read the book. That's the problem. Um, I've, I've, li I've listened to most of the book, okay, in the car, on vacation, you know, driving to Colorado, plenty of time to listen to Lord of the Rings. So... And there's that moment, isn't there, when Gandalf is with Bilbo in his house, and they have, it's after the birthday party thing, and, and uh, they're having this debate about what we're going to do with the ring, and, um, and Bilbo agrees to leave it behind, remember that? And, and then he turns to leave, and Gandalf says, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket. And there's that music, remember that? violas and cellos and, and he reaches into his pocket like, and it's fascinating what the filmmakers have done with Tolkien's narrative which Nicole actually showed me this morning I said is that actually in the book because it'd be so cool I could make it look like I'd read the book anyway not that I'd ever do that that would be really bad wouldn't it but it's not in the book but it's in the when he's holding the thing out in his hand and you know he's tilting his hand and it's like the ring clings to him and his hand it's almost vertical before the ring slides off and goes thunk on the floor. Do you remember that? The ring is still in your pocket, Bilbo. The idols are still in your pocket. Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Don't be coming to me and telling me that you're going to serve the Lord when you've still got the idols back home. It's intriguing if you know anything about the, the history of religions to, to note that it wasn't common for God to require exclusive devotion. Like, Heket is not offended that you also worship Ra, the sun god of Egypt. The, the way that most religions work is you can combine them. Christianity is actually an exception. The religion of the Bible is an exception. Interestingly, Islam is another exception because actually Islam is a late Christian heresy. We can talk about that another time if you like. But most, in, in most um, religions, gods are not jealous of their worshippers. They might be jealous of each other, which is why they're always squabbling with each other. But this is just, well, this is news to us because we've been worshipping idols the whole time. Verse 19, he's a jealous god. Duh. That's why you won't forgive your sins, because you're still worshipping something else. That phrase, jealous God, it doesn't appear very often in the Bible. It occurs in Exodus 20, verse 5, which, of course, is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or anything in heaven and above, or earth 
in the likeness of anything in heaven above or on earth below or the waters below the earth. Don't bow down to them and worship them. Why? Because God's jealous. The making of images for the purpose of worship is, is bad because God is, he demands our wholehearted devotion. You get the same thing in Exodus 34 where it makes it explicit. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. It's like the Israelites having to learn this because they've come from this idolatrous background where they used to just be able to mix and match and I can carry on worshipping Yahweh and carry on worshipping Hecate. No. No, he's jealous and he demands our exclusive devotion. And it's, and it's really intriguing. You look through the book of Joshua and you don't find any of this narrated. You get little bits of serious sin like with Achan and other things going on but you don't find in the book of Joshua any narratives of you know, families gathering around their frog god or the sun god or the, the crocodile god or the bird god of Egypt. Why not? Well, obviously, because it was all done in secret. You know the things the Bible doesn't say that communicate so loudly? And here you have this wonderful community of the Israelites all gathered there on Sunday morning in Fort Worth. Here we are, all bright and shining, aren't we? And in secret, in secret, Put away the false gods. And verse 15 just carries on with this theme. Um, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord our God, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. That's really interesting. It, it, what is Joshua actually doing here? Notice, if you look just formally at the text, verse 15, what he's doing is saying, if you kind of pull all the padding out, he's saying, if, if you don't want to worship the Lord, please decide now which one you're going to worship. You're going to worship the gods of Mesopotamia? Are you going to worship the gods of the lands that you came through? Are you going to worship the gods of the Canaanites? It's interesting how idolatry always changes, isn't it? Um, what, what, what are you going to do? And I, I find myself wondering, well, why? I, I think... Some of it is you, you see a bit of Joshua's personality. There's a note of sarcasm here, isn't there? Like, you're not going to worship Yahweh? Okay, tell me. Who are you going to worship? Come on, I want to hear it. Choose which one you're going to serve. I think there's a, a note of kind of bitter sarcasm, but I think it's more to it than that. I think he's actually trying to be pastorally helpful. His name means Jesus, remember. Why would he say, look... <clears throat> If, if, if as you sit here, you're still thinking, you know what, I can probably keep that secret sin, and my pastor will never find out. If you're, if you're thinking that, why is it helpful to hear this? Well, look, decide. You're going to serve Ra or Baal? Okay, it's Ra, the sun god. Okay, great. Now, choose this day whom you serve. What that's going to do is going to force you to identify that god. And to think about the implications of serving that God. Because this is the problem. We, we so frequently drift rather than leap headlong into sin and idolatry, don't we? we it's quite rare, I think, that um, Christians sort of, you know, self-consciously wondering about, well, should I do the godly thing here? Or should I... Uh, Set above God some other principle of self-gratification or self-aggrandizement, the idol, and then follow that 
principle, what should I do? And we sit there and we look at the, the living God and we reflect on him for a while and we look at this thing and we reflect on this for a while and we think, actually, I'm, I'm going to serve this. We don't ever do that. <laughs> the, the, the strange thing is, if we did, we'd probably choose it less often because if we were forced to look the consequences of idolatry square in the face, we probably wouldn't find it so attractive. So choose this day which you're going to serve. If it seems evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, just tell me. Right? We, we could have a really fruitful conversation, couldn't we? And I'm not suggesting we do it now. But imagine, I mean, this would be a... <laughs> let's see what Pastor Neil would think of this in um, uh, his coordination of pastoral care and oversight. Here's what we're going to do. Every time anybody comes to talk to any of the three of us pastors, what we're going to do is say, okay, I want you to tell me which God you're going to serve first. Before we do anything else, all of them, I want them all listed. And then you tell me which you're going to serve. Because actually, what the devil would like us most to do is to drift into idolatry without even thinking about it. Remember that? Um, if, uh, don't need to put your hands up. You've all read the screw tape letters? C.S. Lewis? Yeah, some nods. If you've not read the screw tape letters, get yourself a strong black cup of black coffee and sit down and read the screw tape letters. Okay. There's that famous end to letter 12. The screw tape letters are C.S. Lewis's attempt to imagine uh, communication between a junior and a senior devil. And so um, uh, they're, they're the letters from the, the senior devil to the junior one. And he's trying to coach him in the art of tempting. At the end of the 12th letter, it's a very um, uh, famous um, little section on this issue of how temptation and sin work. Quote, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, and this is the crucial point, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And so the hours drift into days and the days turn into weeks and the weeks drift into years and men march downhill to hell one by one and all the while they're declaring, I believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. So you can see the solution, can't you? So identify the idols. What is it? What, how would this change our commitment. How would it change our hearts? Interesting, isn't it? That's highlighted so starkly in verse 23. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, wonderful way to incline your heart to the Lord is just to spend a few moments contemplating the alternative. What is it about the idol of lust that proves so attractive? To well over 90-something percent of men and 70-something percent of women. What is it about the idols of laziness and making excuses because it's always somebody else's fault? What is it that seems so attractive? And then ask yourself, what's that going to do to you? Tell me. Ch choose this day whom you're going to serve. See, if if you were forced to say, I'm going to serve the idol of laziness and excuse-making, then you could just be pushed to take the next step, couldn't you? What's that going to do to you in five minutes' time? Never mind 
50 years' time. What, what will happen if you choose resentment towards your husband rather than forgiveness when he confesses that sin to you later? What will happen to you? Because you have to choose. In the end, you have to choose. You can, you can either serve the gods of Egypt or the God of heaven and earth. And he'd like to know which it is. Interesting, the end of verse 15 as well, isn't it? And um, Dale Ralph Davis, a wonderful commentator on this book, very, very readable, homiletical style commentary. He just simply says, in, in relation to Joshua's uh, insistence, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He simply writes, Christian fathers should chew on this. Isn't that interesting? Because me and my house, it indicates some responsibility that, that heads of households have. Christian fathers should chew on this, he simply writes. He's a pastor as well, and a very experienced one. So that's the first problem. Their hearts were still attracted to false gods. Second, and I want to just spend a few minutes on this if I may. The second reason for Joshua's pessimism about the people of uh, Israel uh, they weren't able to serve the true God. In verse 21, and there's something, uh, sorry, verse um, uh, 19, and there's something in what uh, Joshua says immediately after that that's worth paying attention to. Just look with me. Verse 19, you're not able to serve the Lord, and why not? Do you notice that Joshua gives two reasons? We've looked at one already. One of them is uh, he's a jealous God, but there's another one. He's a holy God. You're not able to serve him because he's a holy God. He's holy in the sense of uh, morally perfect and, so to speak, untouchable. You can't come near to him. And so those two characteristics of holiness then map onto the two meanings of serve in Scripture. Serve means both the um, uh, formal religious devotion drawing near to God. Well, you can't do that because he's holy. And it also means the day-to-day -day lifestyle of commitment. You're not able to live up to that standard of holiness as well. And, and that's really striking because I want to call your attention back to what we looked at last week, um, verses 2 to 13. You remember that long history we went through and all the things that are highlighted? And did you remember what's missing? All the things that are highlighted, look, there's Abraham, and there's a brief mention of Egypt, and then you've got Moses, but just in passing. And then you've got the wilderness for a long time, and Balak and Balaam, a couple of verses on them, and then you've got the conquest of the land. What's missing? Do you notice what's missing? Well, <laughs> pretty much the entire book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus. Everything, in other words, to do with the Torah, the law, and to do with the construction of the tabernacle the holy place where Israel were to worship God. Now just think, why is that? It's been missed out from their history. Why? Well, because Joshua is recounting what is uppermost in their consciousness. And frankly, it looks like Torah, the ways of God, and the acres of space which is devoted to the construction of the tabernacle have all been missed out. So you're not able to serve the Lord by living lives of holiness and faithfulness to him because you've just all but forgotten Torah. Law is just not part of who you think you are. You're not able to draw near to the Lord in worship because, well, where's the tabernacle exactly? Where is the tabernacle exactly? Anybody know? 
Where is the tabernacle at this point in the book of Joshua? No, it's a very difficult Bible quiz question. Um, the people are at Shechem. The tabernacle is a couple of dozen miles away at Shiloh. And there is no record of the people having brought it with them to this gathering. Many commentators suggest that they just did bring it and it's not mentioned because it says they're presenting themselves before God in verse 1 and it mentions the sanctuary in verse 26, but it doesn't say they brought it. I think it's much more likely that they didn't bring it because, tabernacle, who cares? And so when they're before God here, probably the the sanctuary that's being spoken of is the the ancient sanctuary that Abraham constructed, the altar under the tree, and it mentions a tree at Shechem, back in Genesis 12. So, so what have they done? They have had, they've had the revelation of the living God in ways that have never been experienced before. Just the previous generation in the wilderness. And he gave them this privilege of a place where they could draw near to him in ways that nobody had ever been able to do since Adam in the garden before the fall. And what did they do? They forgot about it. I'll illustrate what I mean by this. And what happens as a result. And this, this is going to sound like I'm beating up my Bible and theology class. I'm not. But the reason I'm telling you this story is because they're a good class. Okay? It's my 7th and 8th graders. We, up, no, we, we, what are we studying in 7th and 8th grade theology? Ten Commandments. Interesting. Right. So we're studying Ten Commandments. And um, one or two of them had been a bit slack with their homework. Not this young lady, actually. Her homework is like voluminous and beautiful, but one or two of them had been um, a little bit, you know, maybe, you know. I'd asked them to do something, their parents had asked them to do something, and they'd kind of not really bothered to do it. Okay, and so I said to them, look, when you sit down to think in the evening, whenever it is that you're supposed to do your homework, do you self-consciously say to yourself, right, I now have a choice. I could do my homework and thereby keep the fifth commandment, and the ninth, for that matter, and probably all the others, Or I could defy the word of the living God and breach this commandment and dishonor my father and mother and dishonor God and every other authority that has been placed over me as an act of grace at this wonderful school I get to go to. Do do you actually think that? And they're all looking at me like, no, no, I promise. I'm like, well, that's what you're doing. Why does that not occur to them? Because it is so easy for Torah to slip from our minds, isn't it? And this is the problem. All the time, the word of the living God just slips from our minds. Joshua doesn't even bother to record that they'd received it because they might as well not have done. And so that's the second problem. That's, That's the reason why they can't serve the Lord. They've not, they might as well not have received that word which showed them how. Right. So now you see what, by the grace of God, we have to do. Do you not? Okay, so put away the false gods. Ditch them. Don't want to see them anymore. If you need to apologize, do it this afternoon. And second, meditate on the word of the living God. And so take it to heart that it's written on your heart. Which is what the promise of the new covenant is, isn't it? I mean, is it just really intriguing? I mean, (laughs) verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, said Joshua. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was some way of entering the house of Joshua? 
if there was some way of entering the house of Jesus so that you could, you could be among those who genuinely could say those words. Well, you can. By the grace of the Spirit, here he opens his arms wide to you and says, look, Jesus served the Lord. You've been welcome to join him. Now, keep in step with the Spirit by whom you've been united with him. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, how we need these warnings to highlight for us the grave danger that we teeter on the edge of. Call to our minds your word at all those moments when we need to hear it booming in our ears and shattering our hearts so that we might obey it and cause us to be stirred in our hearts that we might fling away those idols that we've brought with us, foolishly thinking that we can keep them secret from you even while we profess to serve you. And so bind us to the Lord Jesus Christ that we may serve him faithfully. We pray in his name. Amen.